Good morning. Um, originally, Joel was supposed to preach this message. He is uh, the person that you will see up here on a regular basis. Um, but then the ice storm came along, and so it shifted the schedule, and we ended up one week off. And so um, I know Joel had really been looking forward to preaching this sermon. The woman at the well is just... Uh, and it's it's fun to preach. Um, and so when he told me that I was up and I realized I was going to get to preach that passage, I kind of had to temper my response because I didn't want to just rub it in on him um, how much I was enjoying the fact that I get to preach this. So, um, I mean, this thing needs a series in itself. This this one passage we're looking at, much less the chapter of four. There is so much here. <clears throat> It would be great if we could uh, spend an entire series on it. But <coughs> I appreciate uh, that Joel is at peace with God's sovereignty, and I'm very happy that he's letting me open the Word this morning. Um, I have prayed, and I hope you have too, that uh, Joel and Christy were both drawn closer to each other and to God in their time off. So this story is rich. Um, now, listen, I just I have loved this story for a very, very long time because there's so much going on in the dynamic between Jesus and the Samaritan woman. And so we've heard about Jesus's encounter with Nicodemus in chapter three, and there's going to be a lot of contrast between uh, how he interacted with Nicodemus and how he interacts with the lady. Nicodemus is named. The woman at the well is not. Um, Nicodemus comes at night basically to kind of check Jesus out to make sure that, you know, he's on the up and up. The woman comes to the well at high noon. She's not even looking for Jesus. Doesn't have any, you know, intention of finding him. Nicodemus is a Jew, a member of the Pharisees. So that puts him at the top of the Jewish social ladder. The Samaritan woman is at the bottom of the social ladder. She's from a people group that the Jews referred to as half-breeds. All right, very derogatory way of looking at them. Jesus used birth as a metaphor when he was explaining to Nicodemus and introducing the teaching that law and pedigree do not equate to salvation. Uh, Jesus is now going to use water uh, as his metaphor, and this lady is going to be just as confused and stumped as Nicodemus was about what Jesus is talking about, all right? So the contrasts are unavoidable, but the similarities are unavoidable also. Jesus meets Nicodemus right where he was, just like the woman. Jesus welcomes the questions, but he doesn't allow the other person to choose the destination of the conversation. Jesus doesn't argue even when he doesn't agree. Now, that's just mind-boggling, okay? Uh, instead, he always states the truth from the motivation of love for the person that he's talking to. Jesus trusts God with both the outcomes. He doesn't seem to feel any pressure to close the deal, to make them make a commitment. Jesus' approach is so winsome that it just draws the other people in to his conversation. There is so much to learn and unfold in this story that the hardest part of writing it was just figuring out what to leave on the cutting room floor. So let's jump in with the context and the setting in verses 1 through 6. When Jesus learned that the Pharisees had heard he was making and baptizing more disciples than John, though himself he was not baptizing, but his disciples were, 
He left Judea and went again to Galilee. He had to travel through Samaria. So he came to a town of Samaria called Sychar, near the property that Jacob had given his son Joseph. Jacob's well was there, and Jesus, worn out from his journey, sat down at the well, and it was about noon. Jesus was always aware of timing. His entire life, he was aware of whether or not it was the proper time. In fact, you remember with his mom, he told her, it's, it's not my time. He is very aware when it's not his time, and so instead of picking a fight, he goes back to Galilee. Now, when it says that he had to travel through Samaria, we need to make sure that we read this, you know, had to, had to for his purposes, yes. Had to for this uh, encounter that he knew was coming. Had to for the fact that he wanted to reach out to people outside the Jewish community. Okay, because there's actually a physical other way geographically to get to uh, Galilee without going through Samaria. This town of Sychar is on the southern edge of Samaria, and the people of Samaria were the intermingled um, remnants of the ten northern tribes of Israel. And so they had mixed with their Assyrian captors, and for a Jew there was nothing lower on the ladder than a Samaritan. There's no way we have time to cover all the history and the significance of this area that he's in in any detail, but the connection to Jacob is clearly referencing the intermingling between the Jews and the Samaritans in their history. By strict Jewish standards, Jesus is already breaking the rules just by walking through Samaria. The fact that it was noon gives us some insight into what happens next. So we pick up in verses 7 and 8. A woman of Samaria came to draw water. Give me a drink, Jesus said to her, because his disciples had gone into town to buy food. A woman, to coming, a woman coming to draw water in the heat of the day when no one else was at the well would have been a clear signal to any observer that something was amiss about her from a social standing. There was, this was normally like a morning or an evening activity. You did it with friends. There was plenty of time to talk. You know, it was about a half a mile walk, so there was time to get to know each other. You were carrying a big heavy jar, so that slowed you down some more. This would have been, you know, a community-type event. Now, Jesus is on a roll with his rule-breaking. All right, he's already walked through Samaria, he's already breaking the rules, and now he just really lunges into it. First, he speaks to a Samaritan woman. That's a big no-no. He suggests that he drink from her bucket, okay, which from a strict Jewish standard, this is going to make him unclean. He is even in her unchaperoned presence. I mean, Jesus is blowing through rules right and left. Have you ever noticed that when you engage a stranger, Sometimes you can do it without drawing suspicion if you just ask for a small favor, especially if the favor is an obvious need that you have. If you approach with a statement, you open yourself up to them judging what your intent is. Opening with a need declares your intent, and often even people in places known for kind of cold treatment of strangers will still help you if they deem your need reasonable. The fact that this woman responded to Jesus at all is tied to the winsome way that he opened the conversation. Now, this is not to say that Jesus is using a trick to get her into conversation. 
you got to keep in mind, Jesus was tired and thirsty. This is a, a declaration of his absolute humanity. He really needed what he was asking for. He didn't have a way to get it. The disciples were gone. Maybe they had a bucket with them, but he didn't have a bucket. And so he had no way to get the water. And so it's correct to say that he is still speaking the truth from the motivation of love. Does he need what he's asking for? Absolutely. But does he also want to engage this woman because of his love for her? Yes. Now, as far as Scripture records, she doesn't even give him a drink. She pushes back with, an, you know, with a question of her own. Look at verse 9. How is it that you, a Jew, ask a drink from me, a Samaritan woman, she asked him, for Jews do not associate with Samaritans? All right, it's a fair question. Most scholars believe that the note about Jews not associating with Samaritans, that's commentary on John's part. All right, this is not the woman trying to explain life to Jesus. She's well aware that he gets the fact that he's breaking the rules. She's very familiar with customs, and Jesus seems to be ignoring social norms. That probably resulted in whatever her demeanor was when she answered. And we can't even be sure of what her tone was when she answered. She may have been a bit confused. How is it that you, a Jew, ask a drink from me, a Samaritan woman? All right. She may have been shocked. How is it that you, a Jew, ask a drink from me, a Samaritan woman? I wonder, though, if she didn't have a bit of an attitude. How is it that you, a Jew, ask a drink from me, a Samaritan woman? We don't really know what her attitude was. But Jesus is unfazed by her retort. And so we get some foreshadowing that this is not going to be your normal engagement. Look at verse 10. Jesus answered, if you knew the gift of God, and who is saying to you, give me a drink, you would ask him, and he would give you living water. Now, if you knew is factually the same as telling someone they don't know. I mean, think about it. If you knew means you don't. And so it declares their ignorance, but it does it in a way that's not quite so off-putting. Jesus refers to two gifts in this verse. The first is God's gift, and the second is His gift of living water. So let's look at the second gift first. Notice that Jesus does not say He is living water. He says He will give living water. And this may have been a harder mystery for us if it were not for John chapter 7, where John clears up the reference to living water. It's in verses 37 through 39. On the last and most important day of the festival, Jesus stood up and cried out, If anyone is thirsty, let him come to me and drink. The one who believes in me, as the Scripture has said, will have streams of living water flowing from deep within him. He said this about the Spirit. Those who believed in Jesus were going to receive the Spirit, for the Spirit had not yet been given because Jesus had not been glorified. I turned 57 in January this year, <clears throat> and so in three short years, I will enter the fourth quarter of my life. 
Who knows, I might get some overtime play if I lose some weight and get more exercise. The biggest change in my growth in following Jesus in the third quarter is my understanding of how desperately I need the Spirit counseling, guiding, explaining, and empowering me. It is so much harder to live when you're trying to just follow the rules. If you belong to Jesus, you have His Spirit. You can acknowledge Him, but basically live ignoring the Spirit. That's kind of the way I grew up. I mean, He was out there. I wasn't sure quite what to do with Him. But you can listen to Him until you know His voice and learn to walk in obedience. Now, I'm here to tell you, life is much less complicated and far less stress when the Spirit is your constant friend. Don't be scared of the Spirit and become a charisphobiac. Don't scare people away from Jesus by becoming a charismaniac. Just lean in and experience what it's like to let the Spirit make you charismatic the way Jesus is. Now, if what Jesus is giving is living water, which is the Spirit, then what is God's gift? God's gift. Some scholars argue that God's gift is the Spirit because of the context here. Others say God's gift is salvation and eternal life. And obviously those are both gifts from God. But my personal take is what he's referring to here is Jesus. John 3.16 declares that God gave His Son... The babe in the manger is the greatest gift God ever bestowed. I believe God's gift is Jesus. Our whole faith is built on the reality that God gave His Son to be born by His Spirit, not by a human father, but by His Spirit as one of us, to do what only He could do, which was to live a sinless life and become the only acceptable sacrifice for sin. God used the actions of sinful men to bring about His will that Jesus would die on the cross to destroy sin, and then He raised Him to life to defeat death and the grave forever. Jesus was fully human, but He lived His sinless life by the power of the Spirit, the same Spirit that is available in, in us. And now he's declaring that he will give his spirit to anyone who recognizes God's gift and asks to receive the spirit. Coming to the realization of who Jesus is and asking for his spirit to come in and control your life is what makes a person a member of God's kingdom. Now Jesus has taken this conversation to a whole new level. And she's not keeping up. Just like Nicodemus, she's a little confused. She's struggling. Where in the world is this guy supposed to get water? And what in the world has it got to do with God? So now she asks a very practical question, and then she follows it up with some critical commentary. Look at verses 11 and 12. Sir, said the woman, you don't even have a bucket, and the well is deep. So where do you get this living water? You aren't greater than our father Jacob, are you? He gave us the well and drank from it himself, as did his sons and livestock. It's always interesting to me, this is just completely a side note, but it's always interesting to me where God chooses to interject little pieces of information about the livestock. 
You remember when he was talking to, uh, uh, oh my goodness, my mind went completely blank, uh, Jonah. You remember when he's talking to Jonah and he says, don't you realize there's a whole bunch of cows in that town? And here, he, it's important to her that she points out that not only Jacob and the people drank from this, but the livestock did too. One of these days, I'll have a very interesting conversation with Jesus about what that meant. Okay, so she's pointing out an obvious logistical problem, all right? But she's wondering about how he's talking about himself in relation to her ancestral father, Jacob. She's trying to make sense. Now, this is a place where Jesus could have so easily said, hey, listen, you're getting lost here, all right? I'm using a metaphor. All right, the water, I mean, that's different. That's, you know, that's a metaphor. Jesus doesn't give her any slack. Instead, he makes even greater claims about what he's offering. Jesus said, and this is in verse 13, 14, Jesus said, everyone who drinks from this water will get thirsty again. But whoever drinks from the water I give him will never get thirsty again. In fact, the water will become a well of water springing up in him for eternal life. So listen, if there's a water that a person can drink and never get thirsty again, Jesus has her attention. She is now in. It appears to her that life would be a whole lot easier if she didn't have to walk all the way to this well or have to hang out with the other women, which she seems to be avoiding. So she's in. So in verse 15, she's actually going to take him up on the offer. Sir, the woman said to him, give me this water so that I won't get thirsty and come here to draw water. All right. Now, Jesus has got her on the hook, right? I mean, she's asking for what he's offering. This is the time to pray a prayer, sign a membership card, and be welcome to the family, right? I mean, close the deal, Jesus. But see, the thing is, he knows her heart. He knows there's something standing between her and being able to receive. So once again, he takes her to a deeper level. In verse 16, he says, go call your husband and come back here. And I would love to know what her tone was. Now, some scholars have suggested that Jesus is merely following protocol because he's basically inviting this to be a family decision. All right. Everybody wants to end and let's make it a family deal. That would make it, you know, very much in keeping with our society. And while that may be true, it seems Jesus has turned a hard left in a conversation that seemed to have been going in the right direction. There's an intentionality in Jesus's behavior in this story and in all of his gospels. I believe this hand grenade was thrown on purpose out of his deep love for this woman. In verse 17, she responds, I don't have a husband, she answered. Jesus says, you have correctly said, I don't have a husband. For you have had five husbands, and the man you have now is not your husband. What you have said is true. Her response is typical of somebody that has something to hide. Technically, she tells the truth. She just comes up way short of telling the whole story. Jesus, once again, answers her with truth spoken in love. So he gives her a compliment sandwich. 
He fills in the larger parts that she had left out. Rather than her opening up about this, though, she decides to try some misdirection. And that's where we pick up in verse 19. Sir, the woman replied, I see that you are a prophet. Our ancestors worshipped on this mountain, but you Jews said that the place to worship is in Jerusalem. Let's please don't miss the humor in her response. I find it very common. Uh, basically, here's where she was coming from. Okay, uh, look, since you've called out my entire history and relationships with men, I'm going to admit that you have some idea of what you're talking about. But I have no intention of discussing that with you. All right. So instead, I'd rather uh, get to you about a very prickly religio religious argument that I've been dealing with. I found it very common that when unbelievers are faced with the personal nature of dealing with Jesus Christ, that's when the walls come up. That's when you start getting questions about evolution and a good God in a world full of evil and the people in foreign lands that have never heard the gospel and the ugly behavior of people claiming Jesus. Those are thrown out as deterrents so that they don't actually have to talk about them and Jesus. And it's not just unbelievers. Many churchgoers are incredibly content to sit in classes and discuss the fine details of religious doctrine and Bible study. They will engage you easily, but they're not willing to talk about their personal sin. They're not willing to talk about their doubts. They're not willing to talk about their pain. One of the things that we have here at New Eden is missional community and DNA groups. Now, we, don't, we are unapologetic for the fact that these are intimate settings. This is where you're going to do life on life. You're going to get to know each other. You're hopefully going to be sharing some of what we're talking about, especially if you end up in a DNA group where there's only three of you. That's time to bear your soul and do the confessing to each other that the Bible encourages us to do. But what we have to remember is that that level of life-on-life -life interaction is not where everybody is. Not everybody that's in our gatherings is ready to engage at that level. And so we need to engage people where they are. And then we need to love them into a place where they're willing to open up about who they believe they are. Because that's at the very heart of everything that's being built in us. Who do I believe I am in God's eyes? So remember, areas of service, going to lunch, play dates, recreational activities, these are all great ways to get to know people at a deeper level. And keep in mind, Jesus started this chat with just asking her to feel a very obvious need. So throughout the whole conversation, which by the way, is the longest conversation that Jesus has with anybody in the Gospels. He spends more time talking to the Samaritan woman in a single conversation than he does with anybody else. <clears throat> so throughout the whole conversation, he follows her lead as she continues to push back and ask questions. But he always goes beyond her level of thinking, and he draws her into new territory. 
Verses 21 through 23 actually acknowledge the current argument that she has raised. But Jesus' refusal to argue the point stands out. He chooses to move the conversation to a higher place beyond the argument. Verse 21, Jesus told her, Believe me, ma'am, an hour is coming when you will worship the Father, neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem. You Samaritans worship what you do not know. We worship what we do know, because salvation is from the Jews. But an hour is coming and is now here when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and in truth. Yes, the Father wants such people to worship Him. See, it's not about geographical location. Your GPS is not going to help you in experiencing God. Jesus' pursuit and God are not limited by your ethnicity, your nationality, your religious upbringing, your gender, your social status, or your sin. See, that's worth saying again. Did you hear that? Jesus' pursuit and offering are not limited by your sin. There's nobody that's disqualified and is too far gone. See, Jesus' death ripped the temple in curtain, the temple curtain top to bottom, and ushered in a whole new era of inviting everyone to experience God. Jesus says true worshipers will worship in spirit and in truth. It's not either or. Both have to exist together. Truth is important, but it is not sufficient. Jesus told his disciples a lot of truth as he walked with them. But then later on in John chapter 16, he's going to tell them, it's actually better that I leave. Which I'm sure confused them. What do you mean? I, I've been walking with you for three years. I've been depending on you to tell us where we're going and what we're doing and what's important and what we need to be listening to. I've, I've grown into this relationship with you, and now you tell me it's going to be better if you're not here? He says, yeah, it's going to be better if I physically go. The comforter, the spirit in them, is better than Jesus' physical presence with them. Worship, the highest level of experiencing God, is empowered by the Spirit through the entirety of our life. There is nothing that we do that can't be worship if we do it in and by the power of the Holy Spirit. And I don't mean to be crass or anything, but I'm talking about all the mundane stuff you have to go through. Just getting out of bed in the morning, dealing with your body saying, please don't make me do this, okay? That can still be worship if it's done in and by the Holy Spirit. It'll change our attitude. So Jesus feels like it's worth repeating. So in verse 24, he says, God is spirit, and those who worship him must worship in spirit and in truth. Obviously, he wanted to say it twice. He wanted to give it punch. He doesn't want her to miss this. God is spirit, and he cannot be worshipped by physical acts alone. Being at the religious place with the religious people, focused on the religious truth, 
is still no guarantee that worship is taking place. I mean, think about that. Just because where you are, who you're with, and what you're reading is sacred does not necessarily mean that your spirit is worshiping. I can't count the number of times I've been in church and realized I am somewhere else. I can't count the number of times that I've been walking down some beautiful path complaining about what was going on in my life, and I looked up and realized, this is crazy. I'm totally missing the sunset. Just because it's right does not mean we're in the Spirit. All right? Our continuous filling, our constant drinking of this living water he's talking about, our overflowing with his Spirit is the only way to truly worship. Now, the truth he's revealing to her has reached the point that she's pretty much hit mental overload. You ever talk to somebody and you realize their eyes are kind of rolling back in their head and you're like, I'm losing them, okay? They're, they're, they're giving up. They can't absorb it all at one time. They need time, time for processing. All right, so the woman says to him, well, listen, I know the Messiah is coming, okay? Now, when he gets here, he'll explain it all. Her statements are true. And she has totally reached the point where she is ready to recognize Jesus. And he knows it. And so now he declares something to her that he hasn't even told the Jewish religious leaders over in Jerusalem. He's come to the least likely place, to the least likely people group, to the least likely person to drop this little bombshell. Verse 26, I, the one speaking to you, am he. All right, now here's the scoop. We got to understand, that's the way it reads in English, okay? But I want to tell you about how it reads in Greek. Because all of a sudden it's going to grab you. You're going to recognize something from way back. This is what it says in Greek. I that speak to you, I am. This is the first and very often overlooked I am statement in John. What is he using? He is using the name that God used when he answered Moses' question. Who am I supposed to say you are? You tell him I am. This is a bombshell. A fantastic bombshell. Jesus, if what he said was, I am he, that kind of makes it sound like he's claiming that he's the Messiah, he's the Savior, which he is, but he's going way beyond that. Jesus says, I'm God. He's filled in that if you knew statement that he gave her in verse 10. If you knew, well, I'm telling you. I'm standing in front of you. Do you know? Have you recognized who is talking to you? Has Jesus' pursuit of you broken through? He said our response will be to ask and receive when we know it is Jesus Christ talking to us. If you're not sure, cry out to Jesus. 
Tell him you want the living water. Tell him that you want to know anything that stands in between you and receiving the gift that he's offering. Tell him right where you are. And Jesus will meet you right there. I say this not just because it's in the Bible. I say this from experience. He will meet you right where you are. Now, if you're a follower of Jesus and it doesn't feel true to say that you're experiencing living water, then I urge you to seek out whatever's impeding the flow. Your well stopped up. What's going on? God, through the prophet Jeremiah, shows us where we often go wrong. So in Jeremiah 2.13, he talks about two types of water. It says, For my people have committed a double evil. They have abandoned me, the fountain of living water, and dug cisterns for themselves, cracked cisterns that cannot hold water. God says He is the fountain of living water. He is the source of the Spirit. The people Jeremiah was talking to had abandoned God and they had dug metaphorical cisterns. Now, a physical cistern is a hole in the ground where you capture uh, either well water or runoff from a rain. Water that doesn't move becomes stagnant. And groundwater contains pollutants and bacteria and animal wastes and parasites. And that leads to sickness and disease. And this is also true spiritually. Living water was a common description of a spring bubbling up and running freely with fresh, pure water. Had this woman been trying to fill herself from the wrong places? See, Jesus doesn't feel the need to categorize her as victim or perpetrator. He didn't even follow up on her admissions about her life. She may have been rejected and passed along by sinful men. Or she may have been trying to meet her own needs in a sinful manner. We don't know. In life, it's usually some of both and pretty complicated. I would, be, I would believe that it's truth to say that the best she had managed was a broken cistern of lifeless water. You, we, may have cisterns that you have dug instead of relying on God. People dig cisterns with family and work and romantic relationships and entertainment and drugs and alcohol and popularity. And listen, even with religion and the church. Be honest with God. Tell Him exactly what you're trying to use to quench your thirst. He already knows it's not like you're going to be sharing new information. What you will be doing is forming a basis from which your conversation with Jesus can grow. Don't be satisfied with anything less than filled to overflowing. In verse 13, Jesus says, Living water will be a well springing up in us. This springing up is the same wording that was used to describe the lame man from Acts chapter 3 when it said he jumped up and started praising and leaping and um, praising God. When I hear about living water that will spring up, I get a picture of going to the fountains at Bridge Street with children. The water's not like a puddle after the rain. It isn't a well that requires a bucket or a pump. 
It is a fountain that soaks all those in its vicinity. And when the children come running back to give hugs, they soak everyone they come in contact with. This is what Jesus is offering those who follow Him. An abundance that fills us up, overflows, and splashes on Him, splashes Him on anyone that comes into our path.